Good evening, everyone. Are we all all right? Now, I was excited this morning. I got up quite early this morning while it was still dark, so I didn't realize that there was a bit of snow on the ground, and uh, I thought it was snowing, and I was getting really, really excited because it's going to be the, the opportunity to have a big snowball fight. Did anyone find some snow today? No, it was a bit disappointing, wasn't it? But it did, did make me think, actually, when the snow finally comes, when it finally lands, I want to invite you all to a snowball fight in the rectory garden. And uh, I think it could be really, really fun. Although, as I was, I was thinking about this, thinking back to my school days, there are some rules. No stones in the snowballs. Did you ever get stones in the snowballs at school, or was that just me? And uh, below head height is probably sensible as well. Now, I want to just talk about this passage that Deborah's just read tonight. I don't know what you make of it. I find it really, really disturbing, this passage. And uh, I don't know whether you've got my slides over there or not. But you'll see, I want to ask two questions uh, tonight. I want to unpack two things. And the first question I I want to ask tonight is, what is the one thing, what is the one thing you want most in your life right now? What's the one thing? Can you identify what that might be? I don't know. It could be uh, all sorts of things. It could be you want a boyfriend, you want a girlfriend, you want to be in with that group at school, or you want to get a first-class degree, or you want the promotion. I don't know what it is. I have no, I have no uh, idea of what it might be. And then my second question is simply this. Have you ever been up the mountain? Have you ever been up the mountain? I want to come back to these questions. I'm asking these questions because, as James has already explained, we are carrying on the Counterfeit God series tonight. And we're looking, if you're unfamiliar with what we're doing and you, you, you're just back or you're new to the church, we're actually looking at this book called Counterfeit Gods by a guy called Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York. And just... For your benefit, his whole premise really, his basic theory is, and we looked at this the week before last, is that one of the, one of the dangers for us as Christians, actually all people, is to actually uh, idealize things um, in place of God. And it might be money, it might be sex, it might be power, but there are other more subtle things. And if we uh, idealize these things other than God, um, it's actually dangerous for us because actually only God, only the living God is worthy of our worship and only he is able to lead us into life and life to the full. And so we need to be careful where we're putting our time, our energy, our focus, our adoration, our affections, uh, if that really, really is true. And it's not that Tim thinks uh, money is bad, sex is bad, Power, ambition, wanting to be successful is bad. They're not, they're not bad things. But actually, uh, they can become uh, bad for us if they take the place of God in our life. And that's kind of what we, uh, that's the frame of this series. So let's reverse these questions. Let's look at the life of Abraham. Have you ever been up the mountain? Abraham, you see, went up the mountain. And uh, I don't know if you know much about Abraham. Maybe you, you study Abraham's life. Maybe you don't know anything about him. I thought it might be worth just to put this story, this episode, 
in context just to remind you of just this extraordinary man and what God called him to do. Abraham was minding his own business in a place called Haran, which is in Turkey. When God came uh, to call him, and he made Abraham a staggering promise. The promise was effectively, look, if you obey me, Abraham, if you follow me faithfully, I am actually going to bless the whole world through you. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Genesis 12, if you want to look at this, verses 1 and 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and give you a blessing, and I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Amazing promise. There is a cost to it, though, of course. If you think about that, there's a cost. What's the cost? Well, Abraham has to leave, uh, leave his friends, his family, his security network, and he has to set out turning away from prosperity, peace, familiarity, and he has to actually go into the wilderness and journey and follow God, not really being sure of, of, of what's going to happen or where he's going. And I don't know what you would do, Uh, Abraham actually responds. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. I don't know whether you can sort of relate to Abraham at all. Having been called by God to move from London to Auckland, 12,000 miles away, and not really knowing what was going to happen, and uh, having to leave uh, friends and family behind. I, I can slightly relate. Please hear me. I'm not suggesting I have Abrahamic um, uh, leanings, not at all. But I, I sort of, having done that, I can sort of uh, see what might have been going through his mind. But, you know, you, if you know the story, you'll know that there's more uh, uh, than uh, actually what we've seen so far. There's more than meets the eye to what God is promising. What is it? You've got it. If Abraham really is to bless all of the nations through his offspring, he's actually got to have children. He's got to have children. And up to this point, him and Sarah have been unable uh, to have children. They've, they've got no children <laughs> So it's like, hang on a sec, okay, this is a remarkable blessing or promise or covenant, but also it's quite seemingly impossible because, you know, Abraham would be thinking, look, I'm 75, I haven't had any children so far. We've been trying, but we can't have children. I remember working, uh, when I was working in London, walking to work one morning, you know what it's like on the tube, everyone's sort of uh, ignoring one another and sort of getting their little groove up the escalators and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I bumped into a, uh, one of my best mate's wife and uh, I said, oh, hi, how are you? And she burst out crying and just sort of crumpled and then she just ran off. And I thought, oh, what on earth has happened there? And it was kind of don't speak to me kind of vibe. So, I let her go. She phoned me an hour later and said, 
Mike, I felt really embarrassed this morning. I'm so sorry. Uh, we just had some really bad news. You don't know. We've been trying to have children for, for many, many years now. And I just was coming back from a, a, an appointment at a fertility clinic. And it's just not good news. Uh, it looks like we're not going to be able to have children. So not being able to have children for Abraham and Sarah and for my friends. And actually, there will probably be people here who have struggled to get pregnant. You know, it's a really, really painful thing. It's a challenging thing. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hugely, hugely, um, um, yeah, just a, a big issue. And this is what Abraham and Sarah were dealing with. Uh, and this is what uh, maybe, uh, actually, when God said these things, thought, hang on a second, this could be quite amazing if this ever happens. The lack of children at that time in that culture was also even more intense because actually um, they didn't really have nuclear families back then. There was a whole sense in which uh, you were a family in a community and your standing actually was, was passed through having a, a firstborn son. And so it's very uh, different to what it is now, but not being able to have a children would have uh, been even more difficult, I suggest, uh, in those days. What I love about God, what I love about Abraham and Sarah, though, is despite the decades passing, despite the years going, uh, they keep pressing on uh, with God. And then the remarkable happens. Sarah gets pregnant. I can still remember Bex coming uh, towards me when I was sitting down saying, Mike, I'm pregnant. And it was one of those magical moments. Imagine what that would have been like for Abraham and Sarah after all these years. You know, Abraham was over 100 years old. Is anyone over 100 here tonight? Anyone 75, you know? This is a remarkable, remarkable thing that happens. And they now have uh, a boy. They call him Isaac. It means uh, laughter. It's kind of joy. It's... it's, it's um, in response to finally getting this child. I had some friends in New Zealand. They couldn't have children. Uh, and I walked with them for quite a while. And they tried to adopt a child. They couldn't adopt a child for various reasons. They tried for about three or four years. Uh, and then, would you believe it, this guy's in a, buying some salad or a cucumber in a supermarket. And he gets talking to a checkout girl in the supermarket and they get talking, and it turns out that she wants to find someone to adopt her child. She's got pregnant accidentally. And to cut a very, very long story short, they end up adopting uh, this girl. And I, I, ne- I, I never forget their joy when they came uh, to church for the first time with this little baby. This is something of what is happening with Sarah and Abraham. So, Abraham... <laughs> has the one thing he's always wanted. Finally, a son. He has the one thing. And I just wonder what your one thing is. What's the one thing that you really, really desire in your life right now? Abraham got it, and they're full of joy, he and Sarah. God's call on Abraham to leave his country, Haran, go to Canaan, uh, is called his first calling. There, there's, there's a second calling, though, which is where we catch up with him. 
this evening. And God basically asks him to do the unimaginable. In his first call, he's called to leave Haran. In his second call, Abraham, as we've just heard, is asked to go and sacrifice his one thing, his son. Imagine that. It's absolutely extraordinary. Genesis 22, 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Maybe you've read this story too many times to just see how disturbing and shocking it is. I came to faith in 1993, and I'd sort of done Alpha. I'd recommend Alpha to anyone, by the way. Come and do it. And uh, I came to faith, and uh, I read this story about six months later, and it really threw me. It really threw me because I found it so disturbing. It, it, uh, it, it nearly just threw me off the rails entirely. What sort of God would do this or ask someone to do this? You know, it was just really, really shocking. Now, the church has not really known what to do with this story. Theologians haven't quite known what to do with this story. But tonight, I want to suggest a few things. And what I want to suggest is that this story actually is all about love. This story is all about love. First, this story I suggest tonight is all about Abraham's love for God. You'll see this on the first slide. This story is all about Abraham's love for God. How do we know Abraham loves God? Well, we know that Abraham loves God for a whole load of reasons. For a start, he trusts and obeys God enough to start the journey up the mountain. I wouldn't, personally. (laughs) I wouldn't do that. Abraham does, verses 3 and 5. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And off he goes with his one thing up the mountain. This uh, sounds strange to us. I don't know whether you've read this Keller chapter, but uh, Tim Keller says actually the only way you can really understand this story is to recognize the culture of the day. Uh, Actually, At that time, you'll know, God had a claim on every firstborn son in light of the Israelites' failure, mistakes, and sin. Every firstborn was forfeit. However, if the people offer regular sacrifices, then the firstborn could go free. This is Exodus 22, if you want to look at that, or Numbers 3, if you want to just read a little bit more about that. This is the key to the story. You see, Abraham is thinking, okay, God has promised me that my offspring are going to, through me and my offspring, the whole world's going to be blessed. He's made a covenant. That's a promise. He's promised me that. He's also a, a holy God who has rights on my firstborn son. It's just the way it is at this time. 
Uh, yet at the same time, I know he's a gracious God. How on earth is this going to work out? How on earth uh, is this going to unfold? Abraham wouldn't be thinking, you see, as as Keller suggests, this is crazy, this is murder, I'm going to do it anyway. Instead, he was probably thinking, I know God is holy, and he has a claim on Isaac, my firstborn. However, I also know that God is really gracious. And even though I don't know how this is going to play out, I actually trust God. And deep down, I think it's going to be okay somehow. Indeed, it's clear from the story that Abraham thinks that he is going to come back down with Isaac, verse 4 and 5. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. So we know that Abraham, you see, loves God, even though he's confused, even though he gets the holiness, he gets the graciousness. He loves God because he goes up uh, the mountain. He's effectively willing to sacrifice the one thing in response to God's command. And he does, he, he, he goes for it, verses 6 to 10. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You see, Abraham was willing not just to go up the mountain, but to let go of the one thing. To let go of the one thing. He held dear. Keller's theory on this is actually that Isaac had become a counterfeit God for Abraham. What do I mean by that? What did Keller mean by that? What what, what he means by that is that uh, Abraham had desperately wanted uh, a son for so many, many years. He finally got one. And actually Isaac had taken the place of God in his life. Isaac had become the center of his life. Isaac had come the center of around which he'd orbited rather than God himself. And actually, that wasn't good for Isaac and it wasn't good for Abraham. And so God wanted him to loosen his grip on Isaac. Why is that? Uh, Because actually, God wanted to give Abraham life and life to the full. And as long as he had this counterfeit God, that would not be possible. So what I want to suggest tonight, first of all, is that in this story, what you see is the theme of love. First of all, Abraham's love for God. Secondly, uh, what you see on this theme of love is God's love for Abraham. You see this on the next slide. 
An angel intervenes, verse 11 to 12. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. And God, in his love for Abraham, provides a substitute ram, verses 13 and 14. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So you see... God's love for Abraham in providing this ram. And actually, what you see as you look at God and Abraham's relationship based on this covenant, this promise we've spoken about already, is an extraordinary relationship of love between God and Abraham. And One thing Keller thinks that God was doing in this episode was actually transforming Abraham. I don't know whether you feel you've been transformed uh, in your life as you follow God. That's the promise of God. That's that's, that's, That's the promise of Scripture. The old has gone. The new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. There's this sense that we get Transformed. Well, Abraham was transformed. When you read the early accounts of his life, there's all sorts of stuff there that uh, uh, needs sorting out. And Keller thinks this episode is one of the things that actually transforms Abraham. He says, through this agonizing walk into the mountains, God was turning Abraham from an average man into one of the greatest figures in history. The three great monotheistic faiths of the world today, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, name Abraham as their founder. Over one half of the people in the human race consider him their spiritual father. This would never have happened unless God had dealt with the idol of Abraham's heart. I don't know whether you felt transformed by God. I I have. I mean, I look back to 1993. I look back to now. I I look in the mirror. I'm quite different. I'm balder. Uh, But I'm quite different. Some of the changes have come through joys, through getting married, through having my own children, all that sort of stuff. But lots of the transformation God has brought has come through adversity and difficulty and struggle and confusion, and mystery, and being very perplexed and dumbfounded by this God I seem to be following, uh, uh, and these strange circumstances that seem to happen to me. But you see, God always works through a grid of love, and you see this in the life of Abraham. So, firstly, in this story, you see Abraham's love For God. Secondly, you see God's love 
for Abraham. Thirdly, I suggest on this next slide you'll see, you see God's love for us. That's what you see in this story. You see God's love for us. And of course, what do I mean by that? You can actually only understand this story in light of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. He himself has given his only son as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for us on the cross. And through his death, we're forgiven. Through his death, we're set free. Through his death, we're able to have this friendship with God. Through his death, the whole of creation, in some strange way, is being transformed. And of course, things aren't over yet. There's more to come. But actually, this is what this story is about. God himself doing what Abraham didn't do. And actually, in so doing, showing us his incredible love for us. I don't know how you feel about that, but one of the basic things, one thing I always bang on about is the fact that God really loves us. God loves us. And so why don't we just put our hand on our hearts, if you can find your heart. I always feel paranoid, I can never find it. Why don't you just say, God loves me and thinks I'm amazing. Should we do it? God loves me and thinks I'm amazing. And he loves you, he loves me, despite the odd questions of life, despite the trials, despite the confusing things, despite all the questions, the things that hurt us, the imperfections of our lives, God actually loves us and delights in us. And actually, if you ever want proof of that, just look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're not silenced by what you see there, you probably need to just pause, reflect, and think about exactly what it is you're looking at. Greater love has no man than this, that he lays his life down for his friends. So this story, I suggest, isn't just about Abraham's love for God. I've got to remember all this now. Abraham's love for God. Secondly, God's love for Abraham. It's also about God's love for us. And fourthly and finally, I suggest tonight, and I'm going to try and wrap things up in a magical way right now, This story is about our love for God. It's about our love for God. And what this story really reminds us and asks us is that, reminds us that God is the one true living God. He's called us and he's called us to worship him and him alone. Why is that? Because he alone actually can lead us into life and life to the full. Jesus, before he died, said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. He didn't say, I've come so you have a really messy life and you have to go to church every Sunday even when you feel like having a lion and um, you've got to do all this stuff you don't want to do. Actually, he said, I've come that you might have life 
and life to the full. And actually, uh, he calls us to love him, number one, first and foremost, and nothing else. For our sake. For our sake. And I don't know whether you think that's a bit weird, or a bit freaky, or a bit intense, or a bit extreme, or not very sorry. It's not very suburbia, is it? It's, it's, it's wild, uncompromising, plain, slightly frightening. But that's what it is. We're caught up with God, I suggest. What we're caught up with this is a person who is intense and wonderful and extraordinary, and he calls us to love him so that he can lead us into life. So this begs the question, of course, well, do we love him? Do we love him? Now, you'll see on that slide, there's a funny diagram, isn't there? And what happens for us as we follow God, this is Abraham's challenge, was that we have sort of expectations of our life, but then there's the reality. And um, I don't know about you, but it's kind of expectations of the Christian life are, zoom, we'll just take off and, and it's just going to be amazing. The whole thing's going to be amazing. God's going to do this and that. And I'm going to get this and that. And it's, and then I'm going to die and go to heaven. But actually the reality isn't, let's just do a quick survey. I haven't done this before. Has anyone had that experience? No one. Okay. Do you, do you recognize the reality of life? That's my life. I mean, my life, that's kind of a bit messy. I mean, mine, you know, you'd have to pour a lot of tears on there as well and a lot of joy, but a lot of confusion and a lot of I thought it was this and that and God, what are you doing and why did they die? And we prayed for them. They're still dead and that child got run over and... Um, what are you doing? And I thought it was going to be this, but it's actually that. And this is, okay. But you see, our love for God can be undermined and eroded um, when we have the sort of take off, no <laughs> squiggle view of life. And, you know, we, we, we think, don't we, life's going to be great. It's going to be, Wonderful. There's going to be no, no challenge. Being married is going to be really easy. And uh, we're going to have perfect marriages. And it's just going to be wonderful. We're going to be like people in magazines. That's what I want to be like. You always look sort of, hey. And our children are going to be absolutely incredible. And we're going to just drive around and have this amazing thing. And there's going to be no sort of trying to get people into the car and all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, everyone we work with, we're going to love. Because we're all working with the same corporate vision. Isn't it fantastic? And... No, 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 you're stressed. Let me do the work for you or all that sort of stuff. It doesn't really happen, does it? And uh, when that happens, what we tend to do is, if you're like me, you get a bit annoyed with God. You can have a tantrum. Have you ever had a tantrum with God or is it just me? Or you just think, God, what are you doing? Or I thought this or I'm not talking to you. And what that belies is a sort of um, view of God, which is that it's all just going to be plain sailing. And uh, God never promises that. And should I tell you something really, really weird about God? As he models, he models the, if you look at his life, if we have the slide back up, 
He models the, broke, the squiggly line. If you look at Jesus' life, it's a squiggly line. That's God. We worship someone who died on a cross, and that's the person we're modeling our life on. We worship someone who was hated, who was hounded, who was ostracized by religious people, who was loved by broken people and people whose lives were a mess. And um, he himself shows us uh, that life, authentic human life, is about the mess. But he loves us. And I would want to urge anyone here tonight who has lost sight of that or is having a hissy fit with God or who's feeling let down by God, who's feeling very disappointed with God, who's feeling confused by God, just to reflect on these things. And in your confusion, in your pain, still come back to this God and put him in the prime place in your life. Put him first. Put him first above your wife or your husband if you're married above your children, if you've got children, above your wider family, if you've got wider family, above your friends, above your ambition, above uh, your uh, desire to be successful, above your desire to do whatever it is, write that book, get that boyfriend, um, go on that holiday, put him first for your sake because only he can lead you into life and life to the full. And please hear me, Wanting to be successful, money, family, uh, wanting to be successful in business, these aren't bad things. They're not bad things at all. In fact, God gives us these things, uh, family, uh, work to do. Uh, We need these things, but they must never become pride of place for our sake because this God loves us and delights us. And the extent to which he goes down the list, sixth, seventh, eighth place, ninth place, 10th place, 12th place, is the extent to which he's limited to lead us into life and life to the full. So please don't feel guilty about whatever your order is, about your idols. This isn't a religious talk where we all get heavy and you go away feeling condemned and guilty. Uh, This is hopefully a gracious talk, which is what the gospel is. It's grace, uh, where you actually go away and feel... um, inspired by what you see in the life of Abraham, silenced by what you see God doing in Christ on the cross, and actually resolved afresh to find his life and life to the full, which is what he wants for you. It's what he wants for me. And it's a messy, a broken, a painful, a joyous, a wonderful, a confusing uh, experience Uh, We will walk when we follow him. But he is God. This is one of the great privileges of life. Amen.